Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause, the podcast for growth-oriented entrepreneurs and executives who aspire to create positive change in the world. Are you in business for more than just profit? Then like and subscribe today and join our channel to become a hustler for a cause. Welcome to Hustlers for a Cause. Today, we're honored to have special guest Victoria Humphreys. Victoria is a polar adventurer, three times Guinness World Record holder, mountain climber, marathon runner, author, businesswoman, and just a normal person. Victoria, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's awesome to have you here, and I can't wait to dive into your background, some of the stuff that you've done, and some of the stuff doing soon. Thank you. It's great to be here. I know we've had a couple of attempts to get this sorted and it's good to finally be doing it. It is. It it definitely lives by your philosophy, right? Like we just kept trying and trying and oh yeah. (laughs) So what was harder, getting onto this podcast or getting to the North Pole? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. How many attempts? Yes, exactly. (laughs) The first question I have to ask, right, is like getting to meet somebody that you know, has been to the North Pole, has done all these amazing things that you've done. Like, I need to know, I guess, first and foremost, like, did you grow up early on just like with an appetite for adventure? Or is this something that, you know, how did it come about? That's a really good question, actually. It wasn't an appetite for adventure per se, but I was always brought up. My parents always said to us, why not? So if we said, can we do X or can we try Y or can we climb whatever, you might fall over, fall out, get wet, hurt hurt yourself, just give it a go, try it. So I definitely wasn't adventurous as such, and I'm still not a proper adventurer by any stretch of imagination. I mean, I like my electric blanket. I like a glass of wine. (laughs) I'm not the biggest fan. I love where you camp in the middle of nowhere, but I'm not the biggest fan of all that discomfort. So I'm not a hardcore person by any stretch. But what I was brought up to believe is things will go wrong, you will fail, you will make mistakes, so what? That's how you learn in life. And so my mother always says, if you're given an opportunity, don't wait to say yes, because if you wait, someone else will jump in there before you. So yeah, I saw an advert in the newspaper, Women Wanted the North Pole. I'd had no dream of walking to the North Pole. It wasn't on my radar whatsoever. But I was just like, yeah why not? Let's give it a go. And worse that can happen. Well, actually, probably quite a lot up there. But yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, it was very much of the attitude, if you don't try, the, you know, the worst that can happen is I don't get through selection, you know. And it was like, just give it a go. Why not try? And I suppose that mantra has carried on through, you know, with me throughout my life. So in terms of how this even came about, you said, right, it was an advertisement that it was in the news paper, you saw it, And you decided, but I think that even like the decision for you to look at this came about probably from beyond that, right? Because you did this with your mother, right? Were you at the time and like, was there any like underlying motivations or anything that happened in life that just kind of drove that decision? Yeah, Yeah. To take that adventure. For me, as I say, it was just, why not? Maybe I was a bit fed up with living in London and fed up with my job, but I was only in my mid late twenties. So, you know, I was early in my career. I wasn't planning for mum to come at all. 
but I phoned her up, you know, as you do that evening and said, guess what I'm applying to do? And she just said, oh my God, I'm going to do it too. Now she did have a clear motivation. She'd just hit 50. So she was the same age I am now. She'd had mastectomy, breast cancer and had a mastectomy just a few weeks beforehand. And this was, she was like, this is my way of saying cancer's not going to beat me. And so for her, there was very definite reason for her to do it. Now, my poor father was just like, oh my goodness, I really don't think I want either of you to go. So of course, the more he said no, the more we said yes. So, you know, poor man. But yeah, for mum, there was a definite reason. For me, it was a why not. It's amazing. And so it's not just like you see this advertisement and you get to go, right? Like there was a selection process you're saying, right? And also I think it wasn't just like a walk to the North Pole, right? It's it's a a serious trek as much as you love to... But tell me like a little bit about, so you get the opportunity to even apply. What does selection look like and how are you chosen? And what did you have to go through to be able to even be selected? Selection was horrible. And really what they would do within reason, couldn't care less about your physical fitness because ultimately anyone can get fit. And the Arctic is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You're pulling a heavy sledge behind you. So we were man hauling our sledges, pulling our sledges the whole way behind us. The Arctic's not flat, so they get stuck. It's yeah, pulling about 150, 175 pounds behind you day in, day out. So you probably only cover six, seven, eight, nine miles in a day. So it's not big mileage. So it wasn't about the physical fitness, really. It was about mental, 90%. They always say the Arctic's, well, and the Antarctic, 90% mental, 10% physical. So the selection weekend was about pushing us or making life difficult for us or just seeing how we would cope whenever all the goalposts change. So a couple of examples. The first selection weekend was in a beautiful bit of Britain in the southwest called Dartmoor. The Dartmoor is beautiful on a day like today when it's lovely and sunny and hot. Dartmoor in the winter, you can have horizontal rain. It's blowing a storm and it's really inhospitable and horrible. That's what we had. And they made us swim through a river fully dressed and then carry on for a bit longer or quite a lot longer, actually, just to see how you coped mentally on, I think, the second selection, which was in the summer. And that was lovely, that one. They took away all of our watches, but said you've still got to be at X point at X time in order to get your rations. So you had to work that one out and you weren't allowed to talk to any kind of tourists on the thing. And then final kind of example things called tours like small hills and any team that was doing really well and getting up there fast they would then put a rock in your rucksack so to see how you coped oh wow that's (laughs) crazy yeah then you you get the chance you get selected and at that point are you prepared to go or is there still like a lot of training and stuff that you have to go through to be able to to make the journey it was about six, seven months of training. And that was when the physical bit kicked in. So there was still the mental, but the physical stuff really kicked in. So I would run, I, as I say, I lived in London, lived kind of in one of the outside areas and I would run or rode a blade into work every day, go to work, do a full day work, run or rode a blade home again. And then I'd go to the gym for two or three hours. And then at the weekends, to simulate pulling a sledge, you pull car tires and lorry tires behind you. You often see pictures of kind of really hardcore polar people practicing doing that and that's what we had to do and you ran the kind of the parks in London I got very strange looks but at that point (laughs) it was definitely about building up your strength but equally it was about preparing mentally 
definitely. But ultimately, you, you've either got that kind of DNA or you haven't. And, and even if you've got it, you still, once you're up there, it's so completely different to anything you could ever imagine. You can't definitely. really prepare for it. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about that more. Like, can you, like, exactly like you mentioned, like, what are the surprises or what did you not expect from the vision you have of what the North Pole is to reality? You know, how different, what were the biggest surprises? And yeah, tell us more about it. It's very different. You know, everyone has these kind of fantasy picture book ideas of it being white, quite flat, polar bears everywhere, a few Inuit floating around, some igloos, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's completely nothing like that whatsoever. (laughs) Absolutely not. The Inuit are these most amazing, wonderful group of people who live up there and they live in completely normal houses and stuff like us, obviously suited to the Arctic, but they're so friendly, so wonderful. Polar bears, if you saw them around base camp, around the Inuit villages a lot because they're scavengers, but you certainly, once you're really up on the ice, if you saw one that far north, you'd be in quite a lot of trouble because he's got very lost really. So they're generally not right up at that last bit where you walk I did see one on a subsequent trip very close to us and but they're not white they're this kind of brownie color but the bit of the arctic that totally and utterly blew me away is the silence but at the same time the noise so it is so completely silent because there obviously is nothing there's no man-made noises whatsoever there's no wildlife particularly because when you're walking it's completely frozen at that point the ice hasn't melted um the only noise is so noisy. It's you, it's your footstep or the the wind blowing against the zips on your suit or the flaps on your tent. And so it's really noisy because there is no other noise to distract you. And so every noise was very acute. And when you, the ice moves all the time, it's not, doesn't stay flat by at all. And it opens up, it cracks massive gunshots and it opens up into these rivers of water or it, rumbles like a tube train going through a tunnel and suddenly the ice will lift 30 foot up in the air in front of your eyes it's it's terrifying that bit I'd read about but I couldn't even begin to imagine what it feels like to be on this ice that is literally moving under your feet or the noise and whilst it was terrifying on one hand it was awe-inspiring absolutely awe-inspiring on the other so yeah that bit of the arctic Everyone tells you about it, but until you live it, I can't describe it. it and it's yeah. beautiful. The colours, it's not all white. It's blue and green and black and, oh, stunning. Wow. Is it, do you have to wear like crampons then on the ice, I guess? Because if it, I can just imagine if like the ice lifts up or something, right? Can you just like slide down into the ocean? Or how does that? You can, More what happens is when the ice opens up, and this happened to us, you literally can the ice can disintegrate under your feet and you can just fall straight into the ocean and that's not great that's not much fun and that did happen and we're very lucky to be alive to be honest but when it rises up it forms like it's called a pressure ridge and so it's like Mm -hmm. literally quite a narrow ridge right in front of you so when that happens you have to take your skis off and scramble over it by hand being very careful of your sledge but on your skis you do have um it's called skins in the old days it literally would have been animal skins now it's synthetic skins and that gives you grip but sometimes you don't want the skins 
sometimes you do want the skins. So it all depends on the weather conditions and the snow conditions or the ice conditions. Yeah. Wow. So what was that like actually falling into the water? I can't imagine that's got to be, yeah, the most terrifying thing. Was that the, like the one moment or like the biggest moment to you that you were like, what am I doing here? Or like, (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. Even now it makes my stomach go, ugh when I think about it. So yeah, we were, we'd had a massive storm the day before. And so we'd been tent bound and the next morning, you know, we got up and the conditions weren't great, but they were perfectly acceptable to walk in skiing. And after probably four, five, six hours of walking, so it was early afternoon, we came to this bit of ice. It was a bit rough, not great, but it was okay-ish. The guides walked across, mum walked across and literally mum just appeared from view. She just fell literally into with skis on attached to her sledge everything I leant on my sledge to try and get up and the ice disappeared under my sledge too so I went in so yeah we were swimming in the arctic trying to get our skis off trying to detach our sledges and the ice was opening up and up and you had this river when we couldn't get to dry land I mean it's not land is it it's frozen water but you know you couldn't get to your ice flows and the teams were set the team was separated and we were in the water for eight, nine minutes. And that was pretty horrible. And at one point, we both managed to get onto little ice flows. And I remember thinking, it was the one time I thought, oh my God, dad's going to kill me. And not in a flippant way. It sounds really flippant when I say it, but I was like, dad is going to absolutely kill me. As I was really worried. And when mum had cancer, I kind of knew she'd be okay. But at this point, I was like, we're in deep trouble here. But yeah, eventually we managed to get to dry land, but then we were separated. You have no spare clothes in the Arctic. You have spare gloves and spare socks, but you have one suit and that's it because weight is of the wow. essence. So everything was soaking wet, but you had, you couldn't, this is where the mental bit comes in. You couldn't call for help. You know, there was, you were too far away from anyway. You had to be self-sufficient. You had to work it out for yourself. So we just left all the equipment that was floating in the water. We couldn't go back and rescue it. And we just walked and moved to get our bodies warm. But we, mum was literally, she'd lost both of her boots. She was wearing what we call stuff sacks. I'm not sure what you call them, kind of camping sacks where you put all your, your bits and bobs when you're camping. Mm-hmm. She just put those over her feet and just walked in bare feet with those, basically. Eventually, we got to a bit of ice and we were able to cross over, meet the others, meet up with the other team and adrenaline that night but the next day and then we had to go back and try and rescue what equipment we could but that next day and the next week was awful really really awful you really had to dig deep because you kept on any confidence and possibly cockiness you've got at that point was just swept away and every little puddle of water you were like I'm gonna die I'm gonna fall in you had to keep going you had no choice you couldn't sit and cry because you had no choice. There was only one way off the ice, and that was as a team mm-hmm. further down the line when the ice conditions were good enough. So, yeah. Wow. How long does that whole journey take? So it was a relay. So we were on the ice. We trained for three weeks on the ice. We were then on the ice for just under four weeks. But the whole expedition, we were from the middle of nowhere to the middle of nowhere. And the whole expedition started um, in February and finished in May. So three, four months. So now... You can't take that long because of global warming. Mm-hmm. The ice melts much quicker. And the deadline for any expeditions to the Arctic, to the North Pole, is when the ice has melted to such an extent that aeroplanes can't land safely to pick you up. And it used to be the end of May. 
I understand it's now the end of April. It's a whole you know, month. That's quite a big difference. That's about 25, 30% shorter time frame because you can't go any earlier because it's pitch black and 24 hours darkness. So you can only start to do the Arctic expeditions when it becomes daylight. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's crazy. I um, It definitely makes me think twice about trying. Oh, no, honestly, <laughs> you know, we yes, were unlucky. It sounds it amazing. Is, yeah. You know, it is the most beautiful place. It's tough. It's hardcore. Yeah. But the hardcore bit isn't the actual walking is difficult or pulling your sledge up and over the ridges. Yeah, it's hard. But none of that is difficult. The bit that's difficult is the mental battles or the fear or the knowing when you've had a really bad day, you've just got to keep on going, keep on going. And if you don't eat your all your rations, that's actually really selfish because your lack of energy the next day could mean life or death to the rest of your team. So it's, it's all that kind of stuff that yeah. it is definitely about the mental, well, resilience, really, about yeah. keeping going. Yeah, definitely. Before we switch topic, so you have a, a book that you wrote <laughs> about the whole journey, right? So yeah, you can just tell us it's a quick little bit about the book. Yes, uh, never in a million years did I ever dream I'd write a book. English wasn't my strongest subject. I shouldn't say that because no one will buy it now. It's yeah. obviously <laughs> wonderfully award-winning, book of prize quality and all the rest of it. But no, it, we were asked if we would write the book. It was the best thing. It was such fun to write it because we wrote it bouncing off each other. Mum and I, we do a lot of motivational speaking. I'm kind of after dinner speaking as well. And we bounce off each other because mum's interpretation of the accident, as we call it, is very different to mine. And so, you know, halfway through, she says, oh, you stupid guy, stupid child, put yourself together. And I was like, <laughs> I want to go home. You know, I want a mother who will give me a hug, not a mother who will tell me I'm stupid, you know, get on with it. Yeah. But it was it's a lot of bantering. But yeah, we wrote it and it sold brilliantly, actually. It sold nearly 20,000 copies now. And wow. Dawn French, the wonderful British comedian, she wrote the foreword for us. So yes, it's called Frigid Women. It's on Amazon and probably all other good bookshops if anyone wants to get it. But yeah, it was good fun writing it. Really good fun. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so I guess you were talking a little bit about resilience, right? So I'm sure, yeah, a lot of what you had to deal with in that entire journey, right, was resilience. But that's kind of succeeded in you now beyond that trip to the Arctic, right? And kind of moved into what you do with your business and kind of the... the the conversations that you love to have, I'd love to hear from you how you define resilience and what it really takes to actually create resilience. Yeah, so I think resilience for me, the first thing I'd say is it, it's not about being strong. People often think resilience is about being strong. For me, resilience is about recognizing you will fall over, you will make mistakes, things will go wrong, whatever it is, your fault, someone else's fault. Resilience is about how quickly you pick yourself up and keep going. So the thing that really I'm deeply passionate about is I think society as a whole, especially in the Western world nowadays, has developed this culture where failure, you know, everything's about looking perfect, looking good. I don't know about the American education system, but the British education system is more and more about getting top grades to the detriment of any of those other soft skills in life and you yep. know sports days everyone gets a certificate and a rosette now you're not really allowed to celebrate first place second place third place that doesn't set you up for life and Definitely. so you get all these people coming out into the workplace and they've never failed and picked themselves up again or they've never re had a goalpost and then that's been totally taken away from them and they've got to change direction and they're like 
oh my goodness, my whole world's imploded, you know, and, and COVID the last year has really shown, you know, which organizations, which people, you know, which whatever groups have managed to, well, in business terms, pivot, but in whatever language you want yep. to use and cope. Now, obviously, there's obviously a lot of underlying factors. And with COVID, there's been a lot of mm-hmm. underlying factors. But if you just look at it very top level, those people who've been resilient tended to have survived and in some cases thrived in the last year. And I, I just wish our society, right from the age of Diddy, you know, youngsters, we were allowing our people to be more practised in making mistakes and then developing resilience. Resilience isn't something you're just born with. It's a habit you pick up through practice. So yeah, I'm deeply passionate about resilience. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you talked about COVID, right? I guess when you think about COVID and what happened and how we all had to pivot in many ways, right? I mean, even if you weren't a business owner, you still had to pivot in the way you worked or how you worked, or even if you were able to work, right? But as a business owner too, you had to change a lot about what you did and how you did it. And I guess there's like when there's these major events, like, you know, it's out of your control. And so you are probably more receptive to change. Right. But it's like, I think everyone talks about those big events, but a lot of times it's like the little things. It's like you as an individual had this goal of where you're going to be or where you, what you want to make. And even as like a business owner, I'm going to make, you know, just a little bit more in sales or whatever that one little thing is. And it's like this one goal that you really hold yourself to. And then you don't make it, right? And you hit a setback. And I think that it's those times that it can be the hardest to find your way back and to be resilient. So I'm curious in those cases, like when sometimes it may even happen where you, like, you know, it could happen and business owner loses belief for a moment or something, right? Like, how do you find that again? And how do you get yourself back? I think the first thing is to allow yourself, again, it goes back to the thing about not being strong, allow yourself time to feel sorry for yourself, feel cross, feel angry, wallow in self-pity, whatever it is, allow yourself that time, recognize those emotions, because that's human instinct, that's natural. But the most important thing is just take that first step. Now, pick yourself up and it may be that first step towards something different. It might be that first step, if you know, especially people with mental health, it's that first step, lift up your duvet that morning. Even if you don't get out of bed, lift up the duvet, sit on the edge of the bed and then get back into bed again. It's those little steps are really important. And, and again, it's about setting its perspective. I think that's the other thing I'm really keen on is perspective. When you aim to climb Everest or something, you don't aim to climb it in one go you do base camp, you don't, you know, camp one, camp two, camp three, whatever they all are. And that's because you've got to break it down into bite-sized chunks. And so again, it's about the perspective. If you set yourself a challenge that the end goal could be big, but you need to have those midway points. Otherwise you're setting yourself up to fail because it may well be when you get to a midway point, you need to go left or right instead of straight on. So it's about perspective allowing yourself time to, you know, be cross, angry, sad, then just one step. Don't aim for a hundred steps, just aim for one step. And then if that feels okay, take a second step. And you, before you know it, you'll have got somewhere. 
Definitely. And I think if you can take those steps and yeah, if you need to break it down, like you said, to something that's so small and so mm, simple, you can tick just the like, list in the morning. Exactly. Just to tick the list and just to rebuild confidence. Right. And then you can kind of continue through it. So yeah, definitely. So I guess then the other side of that, right. Is like the goal setting piece. So how do you, when you look at like a business and an organization, right. Organizations are there to to hit goals in many ways, right? Especially like large organizations got stockholders and stuff and you have these goals you need to meet. How do you embrace failure and still like, you know, manage goal setting effectively when you need to be resilient and you need to overcome these major changes and you need to pivot? Truly got sus because my natural instinct is to have goals, obviously, to be aiming for X turnover or whatever it is, but actually even that little goal needs to be flexible. Now, if you try and tell your shareholders that or your parent company, they're not going to particularly go for that one. And, you know, the business I was running until last year, I, inside myself, I was always quite flexible if we achieved a different goal to what we set out to achieve. But of course, all the comms that you've passed down to your staff is all about this goal and everyone's working towards that goal. And it's very easy for people to assume that it's failure because you've actually achieved something different and you didn't achieve what you set out to achieve. And I get it from a traditional business perspective, but I do struggle a bit because my instinct is, you know, every success is a success and it may not be the success you originally planned, but if you've seized that opportunity, you never quite know where it might take you. So I think I probably annoyed quite a few people because I, they maybe assumed I was too laid back and relaxed. And it wasn't that at all. I was deeply driven, but I was driven with a very open mindset. Yep. And the other thing is I really encourage experimentation and, and failure, you know, innovation, call it what you want. Because I think a company doesn't know, actually, there might be another opportunity that no one's ever thought of. But unless yep. you try it and you allow your staff try something without any fear come back and obviously they've got to present a good plan and you know those kind of things but allow your staff the opportunity to experiment fail do something and go a bit left field and trust them trust them don't don't let them innovate then shackle them by just hassling them the whole time trust them and some stuff won't work but a lot of stuff will and they themselves will become resilient from that Definitely. I think, I mean, there's tons of examples in the past of like, I don't remember if it was Band-Aids or something else that came out that was like, it was an accidental discovery, right? And so like, there is, you know, a great success that came out of experimentation, more scientific, but still same thing with like Amazon, right? Amazon and AWS came out of experimentation. And, you know, I think there's a lot of examples of that. And I think that you're totally right. It's, yeah, it's like goal setting with flexibility, right? So yeah. It's just contradictory, yeah. all the textbooks <laughs> would say, you know, all those books you read, management books, collaborative goal setting and everything. And I believe in all of that. Just don't like, I don't like rigidity. I think that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Is it maybe like a way of like how you define the goal or something like you, or you define with like context versus like a specific result or something? Yeah, I, there are specific results. I mean, clearly there are turnover numbers you are aiming for. Absolutely. Definitely, and I am definitely. just as mm-hmm. driven as the next person. And I'm like, come on, guys, you know, we've got a hundred grand left to get. Come on, we can do it. You know, whatever it is. I'm completely utterly driven and I'm very competitive. Mm-hmm. And I want the t- us to compete as a team against the rest of the world. 
So yeah, I'm absolutely those kind of goals. But I think the other goals are often, it's more, maybe it's broader. It's about a cultural goal, as in my goal might be innovation, you know, develop a culture of innovation and a byproduct. I wouldn't put any revenue in the budget that comes out of that innovation. Any revenue would be brilliant. Because for me, benefits are far greater than just the turnover that comes yeah, out of that, yeah. that product. So I think, yeah, my I have my financial goals, absolutely. But I think my other goals tend to be more holistic, maybe, about the culture, the people, because actually, indirectly, that drives the numbers. Yeah, definitely. That's beautifully stated. Okay, so tell us more about you and your business and yeah so completely different what i'm just speaking about that was a business i ran well i worked in for 14 years and i ran it for five years it was an ed tech business catering for the british curriculum but that business was sold last autumn and i was made redundant as part of that package you know not great timing but actually it was the best thing that's happened because it's allowed me now to follow my passion for resilience you know my I've obviously got to do work that pays the bills. And so I work as a business consultant and you know, especially within the education sector. But actually, at the same time, I work with schools. I can work with businesses in developing, in the businesses, developing that culture and in schools, helping young people understand how to become resilient. And that gives me my passion and my purpose. And eventually, I would hope that becomes the main breadwinner bit. And, you know, so my passion is also my income at the moment, balancing the two. I love it. Absolutely love being freelance. I love the opportunity to meet so many more people and to learn. I'm like a sponge at the moment. And you can, because you haven't got any of that day-to-day -day stuff on your shoulders, you know, the kind of the admin bits of running a business. When you work with a client, you can give them your undivided attention. The insights that you see and can therefore feed back so much more insightful than when you're deep in the weeds in your own business. And I find that incredibly rewarding. It's a great place to be. And I'm hoping I can make it work ongoing. Yeah, the dream is to make the resilience the main bit. I'm sure you'll make it there. I mean, this is from your story and from where you're heading. I can think of a, a bunch of people I can, you know, surely introduce you to and stuff. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think that this is the probably the most important topic or one of the most important topics for businesses now coming out of COVID, right? So <laughs> I think it's probably, you know, when I think of like resilience, I think of like, there are so many businesses that obviously weren't resilient and didn't make it through. A lot of the businesses that did probably still, you know, we're having a whole other pivot now as we go back to work because we're not going back to the same place we did before right. in the same ways we're going through something again that's forever going to change, right? So, and I think that there's a lot about resilience we didn't even get to talk about, right? Like we didn't get to talk about like, where do we need resilience in business and so many other things that like, I'd love to have you back to talk more about those things. And I'm sure that many listeners would love to engage with you to, to get help there because it's a, a big topic. And I think right now is the time to start addressing it because if not, it'll be easy to go back to, you know, business as usual and forget that, you know. And it's also, it's got to be, you know, I am, and I'm the first, to, and actually I proudly say this, I'm not formally qualified. I don't have any diplomas, studies, certificates in resilience. I've got life experience in resilience. And so I think it's really important to combine the two. I think businesses need to understand the technical, the academic theory behind 
resilience and how the brain works and all those kind of things. You can't just do that because otherwise everyone leaves the classroom online or in person and they can't translate that to their actual life, their day job. And I think it's really important. And I think that's where I'm more unusual is I've got that lived experience of how it feels, you know, you know, how does it feel to actually have to sell a business and make half your staff redundant? It doesn't feel great. I have to say you do it and that's resilience. And so I've got, I think companies need to realize that it's not just about the the academic. It's also about applying it and letting your staff realize actually what it really feels like. Yeah. Trust your staff. Don't have wonderful, big strategy for resilience and it's all great and lovely, but actually then it's like a parent doesn't let their child cross the road on their own. At some point, that child's got to cross the road on their own. You've got to let go. And I think businesses need to sometimes let go. Maybe they have done in the last year. And maybe because people have been working from home, they have not had someone sitting in the next door desk to say, sure, what do I do now? How do I do it? And maybe people have had the opportunity to grow a bit in confidence and practice. Definitely. The question I always like to ask everyone that comes on the show is, you know, Hustlers for a Cause, we're all about the impact that we create beyond our business and that ripple effect and, you know, our passion in life. I'd love to know for you, as you tell all of our listeners, if there's one thing in the world that you challenge them to start doing differently, what would it be? Can I have two? (laughs) Yes. So my one thing is, I just wish this whole world, I wish we could all be less judgmental. I wish we could all listen to each other. Not always agree, but just listen to each other. But that one thing, I think for everyone's personal benefit, just walk through the open door. I think the worst thing that can happen is the door shuts in your face or you fall over and you make a temporary fool of yourself. No one's actually going to remember that. So I would say to everybody, walk through that door, apply for that job, which seems a bit big and a bit scary, because what's the worst that can happen? You know, you fancy a girl or a boy and you're scared of asking them out. Worst that can happen, they laugh at you and say no. You know, you don't know unless you have walked through that open door. So I think I would say to everyone in their day jobs and their lives and their personal lives, just be brave. Take that first step. Tomorrow morning, there will be some opportunity given to you. It may be absolutely tiny. Take it, open it. What's the worst that can happen? Awesome. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's awesome to have you here and to hear your story. And I'm sure everyone would love to know where they can go next to, to learn even more about you. Yeah. So from a kind of North Pole and my talks and that side of things, anything is possible co.uk and for my business resilience linkedin so if you just look for victoria humphreys on linkedin and you'll find me there there's not that many of us awesome thanks again so much and i look forward to having you back to talk more on resilience and some of these other topics that we didn't get to go too deep on i'd love to that'd be really good definitely thank you so much victoria and look forward to having you on again soon thank you sean it's been fun thank you we hope you've enjoyed this episode of hustlers for a cause Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss a new episode. This helps us keep interviewing incredible individuals and sharing their remarkable stories with you. This episode of Hustlers for a Cause was brought to you by Blabberjacks. If you're an influencer that's creating meaningful change in the world and you're looking for help increasing the reach and distribution of your message, 
contact Blabberjacks today. See you next time on Hustlers for a Cause. Until then, keep hustling.